Amen. Well, if you remain standing, please turn to your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. In today's sermon text, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 24. And as you're turning there, I just want to just say how encouraged I am to see new members and children join our church, reach out to them, invite them to your homes. I know all of them well enough to know that this, they're just such wonderful, great additions to our community. So at least say hi and welcome them after the service. But again, to our new members, welcome and God bless you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 24. Hear now God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. And if you have children at the age, I think, three to fourth grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church, which is just out the door and to the right. Well, when looking at the religious climate in America, it's quite alarming how quickly things can change in just a couple of generations. Most of us are keenly aware that religious pluralism, if you're unfamiliar with that term, is just the belief that all religions ultimately lead to the same place or that all religions are valid and true. Religious pluralism is alive and well in our nation. Even those in America that check off the box evangelical Christian have fallen into some disturbing trends and not just regarding with basic doctrines. But author, Reformed author and professor Michael Horton, quoting from the Barna Research Group, showed that over a quarter of quote-unquote born-again Christians agreed with this following statement. This is 25% of evangelical Christians, born-again Christians, they agreed with this statement, quote, if a, good, if a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. If a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. 25% of self-identified born-again Christians agree with that. Furthermore, when asked whether they agreed with the following statement, quote, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. Two-thirds of evangelicals didn't find that objectionable. That Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, it's pretty much the same God, but just different names. Two-thirds is quite a startling number to affirm that. And so when discussing the Reformation era on this Reformation Sunday, which again began in 1517, many people also thought that there were different ways to be saved. As historians note, some thought, quote, that there was a saving revelation of God in nature, 
which was really big back then, that there was a saving revelation of God in nature and that therefore Christ was not the only way or perhaps even necessary. But of course, Romans 1 clearly states that God has revealed, to him, revealed himself to mankind through nature, but in our darkened hearts, in our sinful hearts, those do not believe have suppressed the truth of God. The Roman Catholic teaching in the Reformation era taught that Jesus Christ was most, of course, definitely important to believe in, to accept, believe Jesus, of course. But it was faith in Christ plus doing all the other required things that got you into the heaven, into heaven that in the end would actually justify you before God. And the reformers were gathering and thinking, well, let's not just go to the translated Latin or our historical traditions for our interpretations, but let's go back to the original sources. This became very popular in the 15th and 16th century to begin with. The Latin phrase is called ad fontes, to, to go back to the original. And to the reformers, for the Bible, the original sources were the original biblical languages. Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek. And so when they did, they realized, wait a second, the Roman Catholic interpretation of especially justification and of the gospel was entirely wrong. There's something missed in the translation. And through traditions, things have crept in to make this a wholly different gospel. So were the reformers right when they protested and said that we are saved solus Christus in Christ alone and not Christ plus the sacraments or Christ plus good works but solus Christus? And we agree most definitively that they were right because this is what the Bible says. John chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, verse 67, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Jesus is saying there's no other path, actually. There's nothing from our own efforts of works either. But you are saved in Christ alone. It is true that what the other solas said, as, as we earlier you know, reviewed, we are saved by grace alone, this unmerited favor of God as a gift through faith alone, a complete trusting in the reception of the belief that we are saved apart from our works, but in what or whom? Saved through faith alone is only possible because of Christ alone. This is why we have the Calvinist, uh, you know, Princeton Reformed professor over a century ago, B.B. Warfield. He said this, quote, It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, end quote. The object of this faith, faith of course, is what we proclaim every Sunday, but most especially today when we discuss this critical sola Solus Christus in Christ alone. And you might be tempted to say, but everyone who goes to church believes this. Everyone who grew up even religious knows this and accepts this. But even as I was giving you a couple of the statistics earlier, this is not the case today. Jesus Christ might still be respected 
in religious circles, maybe as a good moral model and so forth, but to be the only way to be reconciled to God the Father, the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven, well, many church-going people don't even sign off on this most fundamental basic truth. As Sola Scriptura teaches us, the Bible is the ultimate authority as God's word for faith and practice. And throughout the whole Bible, we see the scriptures point to whom? Our one true Savior, Jesus Christ, as he even taught that even the Old Testament pointed to him in Luke 24. And so today, I hope you joyfully look at today's Hebrews chapter 10 text with thanksgiving and praise as we focus on this loving Lord and Savior. So if you have your Bibles just open before you, Hebrews 10, I'm going to read 19 through 20 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and I'll just end there for a second. Admittedly, it's somewhat difficult to pick up here since the author spent the whole chapter talking about the role of the old sacrificial system. We read that earlier in Leviticus 16 and how the finished work of Jesus Christ fulfilled all that Leviticus 16 was pointing to was fulfilled in one person, in perfect obedience, in his perfect death, in his perfect atoning, propitiating sacrifice. Jesus Christ alone fulfilled all of that. And so allow me to briefly summarize what has come before. The law and the sacrificial system was only but a shadow, church, that was to eventually come, the promise of a true Savior and a sacrifice done not just once a year, but once and for all. But before Jesus Christ, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make an animal blood sacrifice for himself and for all Israel. We, we, we read that earlier. A lot of you know how it went. In the tabernacle, you had the holy place, but then you had the most holy place, which was divided by a thick curtain. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place once a year to make the sacrifice. This is where God dwelt. Year after year, these sacrifices needed to be made in order to avert God's wrath temporarily from sinners. And so this is the context. As the author of Hebrews also reminds us early in the chapter that the priesthood would have daily activities also in regarding to dealing with people's sins every day of the year. Over and over, animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice, blood being spilt. And even in that, the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could not permanently take away their sins. As verse 4 reminds us, that it's actually impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But part of the role of these sacrifices in the Old Testament was to remind the people of their sins and that their sins had to be dealt with in this fashion. A reminder that a sacrifice needed to be made for them, for the priests and for the people. And so over and over, this ritual kept pointing to a greater promise to be fulfilled. And through the perfect death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there now no longer needs to be any more sacrifices. Christ's death and shed blood on the cross was enough to atone for every believer's last sin, either in the past, present, or in the future. His sacrifice is that powerful and sufficient. Not only did Jesus Christ avert the just wrath that we deserve and accepted it on himself on the cross, 
he also removed our transgressions from us. That's atonement. And that our sins won't be remembered anymore. I say that to a church that's been around for six decades or so. And that needs to be repeated every Lord's Day. That should be repeated to our own hearts every morning that we rise that he has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west and he remembers our transgressions no more. The father was completely pleased with this finished work of the son, Jesus Christ. And as verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that is why verse that's why he starts in verse 19 with that word therefore. Therefore, because of all of that, because of all this wonderful truth, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. When Jesus Christ died, that curtain was permanently torn. The separation from his people was taken away completely. We all, all of us, because of Christ's finished work, all those who believe can enter his presence freely and yet with confidence, it says, not based on our work, not based on our goodness, not based on our morality or good deeds that we accumulate over life, We have access to him because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ through the flesh. And so before we go on, this is just interesting in, in the Reformation Sunday, talking about the reformer Martin Luther. Before 1517, when he was, before the beginning of the Reformation, when he was stuck in this anti gospel way of thinking, that he was, of course, brought up and taught as a monk. Those were terrible, dark moments for him in his autobiography. When he felt there could be nothing done for him and his guilt, he couldn't quite possibly do enough to be justified before a holy God, even though he tried harder than anybody else. And so he was left with this despair and frustration. Remember, the Roman Catholic Church taught that you needed faith, of course. You needed grace. You needed Christ. But in addition, you also needed a whole life lived in good deeds. And actually, in participation in in what was required from the church. So all of that added up together. Yes, faith, grace, Christ, but also the sacraments, all the things that the church regulated. If you add up all of that to the work of Christ, you could hopefully then be saved and justified. It actually reminds me of how I grew up in church. We heard Jesus. We heard quote-unquote gospel. We heard the terms grace and faith. But it was really, Robin, how good of a Christian can you be? And the better you become as a Christian, the more assurance you could have before God. Now, I don't know if any of my youth group pastors said that explicitly word for word. But that was a sentiment that I grew up with. And so for Martin Luther, this was impossible to meet in the end. He got angry. He even wrote that he hated God and that he knew that God was continually angry at him and he was just inundated with these thoughts over and over again. But when he went back to the original texts 
and truly rediscovered the biblical gospel, he rejoiced to realize that if Christ's perfect work and his righteousness was credited to him through faith, and Luther's sinful deeds were credited to Christ on the cross in that great exchange, he could then completely rejoice because now he could have confidence before his holy and loving God. He was experiencing what the New Testament authors were shouting out in joy all the time. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, because they already know how this formula works, we have confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so picking up in verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, speaking to, about Jesus Christ, greater, the greatest high priest of all, verse 22, let us then, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Bible says we are made white as snow. And the author of Hebrews is saying, and so we have confidence to enter into God's presence because we are made white as snow, because of the shedding, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood. We have Christ as the great high priest who is our perfect mediator and also intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of God, not just once a year, not through a mediator of a priest, a human priest, here at Westminster, but as a perfect once and for all mediator and 24-7 intercessor on our behalf. And so the encouragement from the author is, that's why you draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Sometimes I do that in our call to worship, in the opening prayer. And you guys might have heard me say this over the last year, that Lord, even if we had a bad morning, perhaps we had a bad week at work or with family, or with sinful thoughts and deeds. But I'm gonna draw near to you, God, in this very moment, in this holy place, in this sacred time to worship as a body of Christ because of the Son's finished work and not mine. So often I hear people share, I feel so distant for God, or I feel as if God is absent from my life. And I've talked to many people over the years, they dread even coming to a worship service. Why? It should be the, the place where we most want to run to every week. But so many people say, no, 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 no. That brings a lot of anxiety and fear to me to go before God at church. Because they feel, feel like I have too much guilt. I have too much embarrassment or shame of what I've done or how I live or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've messed up too large, too big. They've... I've not lived up to his standards, and so they dare not lift up their face to God in worship. And perhaps some of you felt that way today, or in your quiet devotions before God, and you feel as if he is so upset with you and displeased that he doesn't want you to come to him, that somehow that wonderful invitation of come all who are heavy-hearted and burdened and find rest in me, oh yeah, I, I know, God, that you said that, I know my Savior said that to me, but not it probably doesn't apply to me. And so day after day, that goes on until eventually you stop feeling desire or need to speak to him at all. Days become weeks, perhaps weeks become months, and so on. But the Bible, with its gospel proclamation, says it's because of what Christ alone has done on the cross for you 
that justifies you, saves you, and now allows you to confidently approach him with full faith, full trust that your assurance is based on his finished work and not yours. And when we rehearse, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day and every Lord's Day Sunday, this is what grants us joy and confidence. Easy peasy, right? But that's not how our flesh works or for our enemy for that matter. We have ingrained in us opposite of the gospel. We have ingrained in us the desire to expect what we deserve. And so when we earn either good or bad, we believe this is how the world should be. And it should be no different with our holy God in our distorted thinking. If we have a bad morning, we should then not come with confidence to worship him. If we have a bad week, well, the next week should be a week of making up for our loss and falling short. We have ingrained in us the need to balance everything in the spiritual realm, in our mind, in our thinking, even in the depths of our hearts. I need to keep score and I need to balance everything before I come confidently before God. But the gospel offers something so otherworldly, so counterintuitive, so countercultural, that God does not give us what we deserve in wrath and punishment, but does the opposite. He grants us peace, forgiveness, and the assurance that we're considered right or righteous in his sight. Not based on our works or demerits or merits, but based on the Son's perfect obedient life and perfect obedient death and of course in the glorious resurrection all received as a gift of free grace that through faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone we are saved it most certainly takes time for that to fully be understood in our hearts but yes this is true this might actually be the first time you've actually heard this articulated this way can this be true well search the scriptures Look for the gospel in these texts and all the passages that point to Jesus Christ. Because there's plenty of verses in the scriptures about warning, of course, warning not to fall away, warnings not to be snared away and directed towards a path of direction, a destruction. But there are these passages that encourage us to take hold, though, fully of our assurance in Christ alone. I read an article that during the height of the Reformation, Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian, who was a cardinal, once said that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is not faith alone, it's not grace alone, it's not sola scriptura and so on, but he wrote, the greatest Protestant heresy and threat is the assurance of salvation. To this cardinal, it was the greatest of all Protestant heresies because it proclaimed a statement that a believer can be justified by Christ's finished work alone and that our assurance is guaranteed by Christ alone. And to this cardinal, that was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. For him, the believer could never really have full assurance because he or she had to keep living according to the church's standards and practices and add to that all the other stipulations of great faith grace, faith, and so forth. But to say a believer should have assurance was utterly heretical to him. But the author of Hebrews is clearly stating that in Christ alone and in his finished work alone, we most definitely approach God with full assurance of hope because through faith in Christ alone, we are immediately 
immediately justified, cleansed, and saved. How does the world work? Even if it was a guarantee and assurance of just, you know, something that would just blow your mind, of something, a gift to say, hey, in 30 years, if you keep this trajectory, then you will be dot, 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 and get dot, 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 and so forth. But for the reformers, they were recapturing the gospel and saying, wait, this happens immediately. We don't tear up over the decades. We are justified immediately. We are cleansed immediately. We are regenerated and saved immediately. But the strange thing is this. Even though we see this clearly in the scriptures, even though it's been rediscovered for us, even though we believe in faith, we struggle with doubt. As the man in the gospel said, I believe Jesus. Oh, I believe you, Jesus. Help me in my unbelief. Sometimes frequently, sometimes once in a while. Years ago, I remember a person coming up to me, almost afraid to ask the question, hey, Robin, is it okay that I have doubts? And she said, I, I was told that Christians don't doubt. And I felt such compassion for her because I could see it was weighing heavily on her. And then she was hearing other Christians saying, well, something must be wrong with you. Maybe you're not a genuine Christian if you struggle with that. But friends, I want to reassure you, because we're not perfect in this world, because we're not sinless, and because we're still progressively being sanctified, not progressively being justified, but progressively becoming more and more like Christ through the Spirit, there is opportunity for doubt to creep in, even for a genuine believer. Christians biblically are encouraged not to doubt, of course, and to hold fast to the promises of God. They're encouraged toward that end. But that doesn't mean doubt is never encountered in the life. I remember rather shockingly hearing an interview with one of my favorite theologians, a hero of mine, who was asked, sir, do you, do you ever doubt? And he, and he didn't even need 10 seconds. He just immediately answered, I doubt every day. And he said, that's why we need the gospel and gospel reminders every day. That other theologian I would quote often is, every morning we wake up with spiritual amnesia. We forget what we just heard on Sunday. We forget that gospel reminder that we read in the morning or the last night, and we rehearse it over again. And so when we doubt, when we sin, when we are tempted with despair, this is when the gospel can shine the brightest in your life to realize again, oh, the promise of full assurance is not based on how strong my faith is or how great a week I've had, but how strong and great our Christ is. And so to summarize so far, because of what Christ has done as our once and for all sacrifice of atonement and our great high priest, brothers and sisters, draw near to God. And when we come to the table, draw near to God with full confidence and assurance. But as one author mentions, that same cardinal that considered assurance the greatest Protestant heresy also said this. He said, quote, if you teach this assurance... If you teach this, and those who believe it will live in license and antinomianism. Basically, fancy words are just saying, living in disregard of all of God's commands. He said, they will live like pigs. But as we have discussed many times here, after gospel truths and statements and proclamations, 
always comes gospel implications and instruction. Always instruction on how to think and live in the new way. And so the author of Hebrews continues with these just wonderful gospel statements in those verses that we read. Now to verse 23 through uh, and following. Three instructions, and this is our application today. Three instructions on how to live after we have the assurance to draw near to God with confidence. Number one, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us, that means this is a body of Christ, hold to the gospel truth without wavering. He is faithful to finish what he started. That's the wonderful verse in Philippians 1.6. The author is saying, basically, persevere all you saints of God. Even though you have this assurance now, you need to keep persevering. Rather, we trust in God to preserve us to the very end. So let us hold fast then to the confession. This is what we recite every Sunday. This is what we hear proclaimed, but we need to rehearse every day of the week. So let us hold fast. Number two, it's let us, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He's not saying be saved, have assurance, and then go see you in heaven. But no, this is how you are to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is the new trajectory. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Ephesians 2 talked about being created in Christ for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. So the theme continues on here. Love one another and with good works inside and outside of our church walls. But the encouragement is to stir up one another. To point each other to Christ and to encourage each other to live out gospel implications. This is what assured believers pursue. And then when you call up someone and say, hey, since COVID, I haven't seen you in, in two years now. And I'm wondering how you're doing. This, this, is, this is our obligation. This is our calling as we're committed to covenant living in the covenant family of God. To stir up one another to love and good works, but also to point to our solus Christus doctrine in Christ alone. And finally, number three, I think I said we were reading to 24, we're actually reading to 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as believers who are saved in Christ's finished work alone, we continue on in worship, we continue on in fellowship, we continue on using our gifts to serve the church, all with encouragement to persevere into Christ's returns. That's why you say that word day capitalized here, when the Lord returns. Until then, we keep encouraging one another in these ways. And so in conclusion, we do all these things not to keep our salvation. We do all these things not to earn our justification, but to simply do what assured believers are empowered now to do, to bear fruit because God has made the good the tree good, not the other way around. We don't try to bear good fruit to become good trees, but we bear good fruit because we have become good trees because of the finished work of Christ. God assured us he has already done that in your salvation and justification. <clears throat> so remember our introduction at the very beginning. <clears throat> How insufficient and absurd then is the statement that all roads lead to heaven. 
that there can be many mediators on our behalf. Nothing can emulate or take the place of the finished work of Christ alone. This is what the reformers were recapturing for us. And what our polling statistics show us again and again, many church-going people in this country and around the world don't truly grasp and understand the true biblical gospel the Reformers rediscovered 500 years ago. So no, the Reformation is not over. The church continually needs to reform wrong doctrine and wayward, human-centered theology, a political gospel, a social gospel, etc., etc., and go back to the biblical true gospel. And the struggle continues on, but we give thanks to God on this day that he will continue. There's no doubt about that, that he will continue to purify his church with his word and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, all pointing again and again and again. One of the main roles of the third person of the Trinity is to point again and again and again to the finished work of Christ alone. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask for mercy, for we think we know this doctrine. We think we have it all down. We feel that we don't need to hear the gospel proclaimed anymore. Lord, have mercy on us. Oh, we need it every day. We need it every hour, every minute of our lives. We need to be pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Would you help us? But Lord, I pray that there would be encouragement here this day, that this is why we could stand up, this is why we could look up to the heavens, not because of how polished we are, but because of how good you are and how good the finished work is. So thank you, Lord, for this reminder of Christ alone. May that fuel us to worship you rightly and well. May this fuel us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling and of the gospel and of you, God. And may we rejoice in the glory of you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand with me.